Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the food, the people, the culture, and the history of the state of Israel. Hey, listen, if this is your first time watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. Don't forget, do not forget to share us with your friends, with your families. Um, let everyone know you're watching this and get them to watch it too. Um, if you want to take us with you, the audio version can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, hey, Joe, Mr. Rogan, I'm right there with you. Apparently, I'm getting like hit with messages right now. <laughs> um, also, this episode's brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards. Um, they're the best way to learn Hebrew, the best way to brush up. You can find them on Amazon for Kindle. If you don't have Kindle, you don't need a Kindle. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You can download it onto, uh, onto your Android phone, your iPhone, your iPad, your PC or your Mac, and you can read it on any one of those platforms. Hey, um, all right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, we are, so originally if you've watched this series, we're in the middle of the, the 12 cities in Israel, um, where I tell you the, uh, what do I tell you? I tell you the history in episode one. And in episode two, I tell you about the modern uh, the modern city. That is with, with the city we're on right now, Jerusalem, which if you're watching, you can see it on the whiteboard right behind me. Um, Yerushalayim, uh, which is Jerusalem in Hebrew, um, is such, if it was, I swear, if it was an amusement park ride, it would be, well, one, it would have to be a roller coaster. It would probably be one of the most violent rides you've ever got on in your life. Um, but it would also be the most rewarding. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it is such a convoluted complex, but then by the same token, very simple history of this is mine. I want this. Um, and this is it. So why am I telling you all that? Because this Jerusalem episode is not in two episodes. <clears throat> we're actually, um, we're moving, we're doing the first, uh, we are moving into a third episode for a city, but it's the last city. And I figured it was going to take a long time. Um, so let's dive in. But before we do, Peter, Madeira, and J-Hats, this sip of coffee is for you. Mm. All right. Yeah. So there is a lot going on. We, where did we end? We ended with the Ottomans last time. Um, and that was, we saw that Jerusalem in all its past ancient glory, um, you know, from, from the biblical 
uh, era of David all the way up until the Hellenistic and the Roman Herodian period, all of that. Um, It was now under the Ottomans kind of a backwater that was attended just because it had religious significance. It wasn't a center for trade. It was a place for pilgrims and it was, yeah, it was, it was a backwater. But what we also found out is that it started to become its own governorial, I don't know. uh, (laughs) It became its own region. And it had its own governor. And that region went all the way down past Beersheba in the south and up into the north. So let me tell you a little bit about um, Jerusalem. It is, as I said um, in the last episode, the capital of the state of Israel. Um, It sits on a plateau uh, in the Judean mountains between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. It is one of the oldest cities in the world. And it is holy to the three major Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It has been destroyed at least twice, uh, besieged 23 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, attacked 52 times, and every major power in the ancient world is at one time or another held it under its control. Despite this fact, Jerusalem is held in historic memory as the fiercely independent and influential seat of the kingdom of David, uh, the kingdom of Solomon. It is the, uh, the seat for the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees, and it's also uh, the city of Herod. Um, that's where he ruled from, was from Jerusalem. But as we're going to start to see with this history, um, this tenacity, this drive, <clears throat> this independence, I'm sorry, I got something stuck in my throat. This independence is going to uh, be rebuilt and rewritten again with a new narrative. And that's going to be, um, well, let me just tell you what happens. So... Um, in 1917, during World War One, the Ottoman Empire sided with the Axis powers against America, the British, and their allies. Uh, one of the most significant battles in this theater occurred during the British Empire's Jerusalem operations against the Ottoman Empire. This, of course, was the Battle of Jerusalem, which took place from November 17th until the 30th of December and was the final strategic goal for the Allies in the region during the Sinai and Palestine campaign that was uh, that was engaged in by the British against the Ottomans. Now, the loss of both Yafo and uh, Jerusalem, together with the loss of some 50 miles of territory during the British-Egyptian Expeditionary Forces advance under General Archibald Murray from Gaza, uh, was crippling for the Ottoman Empire. In success after success, the British captured Beersheba, Gaza won the Battle of Herrera, and Sharia, northwest of Beersheba, the Battle of Tel El Kuwelfe, I, I hope I'm saying that right, north of Beersheba in the Judean hills, and the Battle of Mugar Ridge near present day Ramleh, which is in central Israel. Um, 
So all of these things led to just a dwindling down of Ottoman forces during World War I. With all of these victories, the forces of the British Empire were able to capture Jerusalem and establish a fortified line of defense. The strategically strong defensive line ran from up to the north of Yafo, so above Yafo, um, southward across the Judean hills uh, to al Berei in today's central West Bank, north of Jerusalem, and continued to the east of Jerusalem's Mount of Olives. So they had this long defensive line that effectively split um, split the area in half, modern, what would be modern-day Israel in half. Another factor in the British's ability to secure the city was the capture of the road from Beersheba to Jerusalem via Hebron and Bethlehem. Uh, together with the capture of a substantial amount of Ottoman territory south of Jerusalem. So they were just able to pound into them and eventually just push them right out as they just rode into Jerusalem. Now, with much fanfare and celebration, General Edmund Allenby entered the old city on foot. So I said he rode, but he didn't. He went in on foot through the Yafo Gate on the 11th of December, 1970, uh, 1917. Allenby did this without arriving on a horse or a vehicle as a display of respect for the Holy City. And the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, David Lloyd George, described the capture of Jerusalem as a Christmas present for the British Empire. Oh, good for you. Uh, since it was the first time in centuries that Christian authorities held control over Jerusalem. The victory over the Ottomans and the securing of the city that laid claim to being the home of three of the world's major religions, uh, it greatly boosted the morale of the British Empire and its forces during World War One. So now we have Jerusalem is now in the hands of the British. Oh, what can go wrong? Hold on, I'm gonna have another sip. Give me a moment. Mm. All right, so. In 1922, following the end of World War I, uh, the Ottoman Empire was dismantled and distributed via the League of Nations at the Conference of Lausanne to France and the United Kingdom in a quasi-conservatorship quasi until the local residents of the different regions could have it handed back over to them when they were ready for self-determination. That is so nice of the UN to do that. Um, in other words, what they were uh, when they were ready to become a nation uh, that could uh, then they could hand over all their resources uh, to the markets of the former allied nations. So when Lebanon was ready, it would be turned over. Uh, to the Lebanese, when Syria was ready, it would be ha handed over to the Syrians. And I honestly don't think that they had a plan to hand over Jerusalem or uh, mandatory Palestine because of um, the oil pipeline that ran from Iraq, if I got this correct, Iraq all the way up to uh, Haifa. 
So I know it ended in Haifa, but there was too much oil uh, with British petroleum and all that. And, and, and to control that sea lane, that port was incredibly important. So honestly, I don't think the British ever intended to let it go. Now, this structure for control of these areas was the mandate plan and afforded custodianship of Lebanon to the French in the French mandate for Syria and Lebanon um, and the British mandate for Palestine, which also included what would become Transjordan or Jordan now, uh, neighboring it to the east and Iraq. Ah, I mentioned that beyond it, even further to the east. It should also be noted that Britain controlled the kingdom of Egypt until their independence in 1922. Now, the governance of mandatory Palestine by the British was riddled with difficulties from the start as they had to deal with the legal and contractual obligations of both locals and foreigners. I had no idea about this. I mean, I knew something about it, but once they had taken over a decision to use claims of ownership that were upheld by former Ottoman courts and bureaucratic administrations was a standard that was and is still used uh, to identify owners of property, even to this day in the West Bank territories. So I knew that they used Ottoman um, records to establish ownership. That's how they're able to remove settlers from one place or transfer ownership uh, to um, Jewish residents who move out there. Um, and I knew that they relied on that, but I didn't realize how extensive it was and that it went that that the British used it as much as they did. So after the new system was put into place, the former Ottoman residents of mandatory Palestine and by extension, Jerusalem were caught in a confusing atmosphere of chaos following their sudden lack of, even though it was often minimal and apathetic Ottoman leadership. So uh, the Ottomans didn't really care, but they were used to having um, Ottomans as their guys in charge. Simply put, the Arabs and the Jews of the city had, for the most part, been left um, alone to do as they would by the Ottoman authorities. And you you saw in the history last time that that was at a whim. You know, all of a sudden, some guy could come into power and he could decide that Jerusalem was important to him uh, or it was important to someone in his family. So he would reinforce it or build things in it. Uh, the same was true of the Mamluks before that, and it on, on and on and on. It depended on who, who decided Jerusalem was important to them. Now, for the Arab residents of this new government, it was problematic for the simple fact that they didn't give credence to non-Islamic rule, having been under the rule of a caliph for centuries. <clears throat> now, in an attempt to make their rule more palatable, uh, to the Arab population. In 1918, the British appointed Kamil al-Husseini as the brand new Grand Mufti of Jerusalem to be representative of Islam in the mandate, uh, in the mandate territories. Now, this was a title that was copied from the Grand Mufti of Egypt and was done to give legitimacy to the controlling Arab families and nobility um, that lived in the area. 
Now, he was seen by the British as someone that they could work with because he sought compromise with both the British and the area's Jewish residents. And for all intents and purposes, I haven't really heard anything bad about the guy. Um, but this, though, would not last because just three years later, Kamil al Husseini died and was replaced in 1921 on appointment of the British High Commissioner Herbert Samuel by his brother, Mohammed Amin al Husseini. This appointment would lead to one of the darkest chapters of the mandate and would become synonymous with the violence we see in the region today. This is really important. This is the core and the root. This man is what has caused basically the vast majority of the problems uh, um, in what is Israel now. Um, the Grand Mufti Al-Husseini's desire for Islamic Arab supersession in Jerusalem and Palestine and his ties to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt would become one of the roots of anti-Jewish violence for decades to come and become the standard for what would develop into a brand of Arab and Islamic anti-Semitism that is still in use by Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran. And I read a biography of this man, and he is... I'm, I'm sorry, this may make someone really upset, and I apologize if I hurt your feelings, but I'm not going to apologize for what I'm saying. This guy was despicable. Um, Mohammed uh, al-Husseini was a horrible man. Um, while still seen as a hero today by Palestinian leaders, by everyone else he is seen as a despicable figure. Uh, granted, the British were by no means gentle in their treatment of the mandate's Jewish residents, but they did make the right choice by exiling Grand Mufti al-Husseini from mandatory Palestine. He was instrumental in organizing and fomenting Arab-Jewish tensions um, and even led the 1920 Nebi Musa uh, riot that led to the deaths of five Jews and the ransacking of the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. Now, this is what's crazy. For this, he was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for incitement, but was amazingly pardoned by the British. This was before he was even appointed as the Grand Mufti, which gives you an idea of how the British authorities felt about the Jews in the area. So surprisingly, though, the British considered him an important ally during the period of 1921 through to 1936. But it, his Arab nationalist, anti-British and anti-Zionist positions became apparent and difficult to, you know, for them to move forward with um, when he became instrumental in instigating both the 1929 Arab attacks on Jews over access to the Western Wall um, and the 1936-1939 Arab revolt in Palestine. With this, uh, the British issued a warrant for his arrest in 1937, but rather than stay to fight it, he fled and bounced from the French Mandate of Lebanon to the Kingdom of Iraq, until he finally landed in fascist Italy and eventually 
no shit, Nazi Germany. Um, once there, he became a, I'm not making this up. This is what's crazy. Once there, he became a confidant of Hitler and took an active and supportive role in the Holocaust by working to block Jewish refugees from being able to escape Europe, working with Himmler's SS to train Muslim SS death squads in Eastern Europe, and by securing assurances from the Nazis that should they be successful in removing the British from mandatory Palestine, that he would be allowed to enact the final solution there against the Jews of Palestine. I, 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 I was speechless when I, by the time I finished reading his biography, I was appalled I mean, you 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 hear about the worst people. You hear about Hitler. You hear about Stalin, and then you read about a guy like this, and you're like, "Why does everyone not know how horrible this man was? And why is this narrative missing? Well, it's not missing now. And I'm sorry if if it's emotional. It's coming out of me emotionally, but it is not embellished. It's actually I I had to reread it a couple of times to ensure that my Jewishness would not affect emotionally my telling you that part of Jerusalem's history. Oh, hi, how are you? I'm calm. <laughs> I'm going to have a cup of coffee. I'm going to have a sip of coffee. Sorry. I just, that, that, he really gets me worked up. Hold on. Mm. So, anyways. We're going to move on from him, and we're going to move on to something um, brighter. We're going to move on to the Yeshuv. And for those of you who don't know what the Yeshuv is, it's going to be really kind of cool. So during the time, uh, during this time, the Yeshuv, or the Jewish residents who had been returning to Eretz Israel or the land of Israel, from just prior to the turn of the 20th century, had also been working to create a home for the Jewish people. Now, these yeshuvim were not to be confused with the old yeshuv, who were the Ottoman Jewish residents of the area prior to the arrival of the diaspora Jews during what would be called, uh, what would be called the aliyahs. Um, now while they have differing recent histories, both came together to create a continuation of Jewish culture and roots to the holiest city of their faith. During the numerous aliyahs, many made Jerusalem their home and founded educational, uh, medical, cultural, and religious institutions, um, that still stand to this day. That's so cool. Um, it was hoped for that the British control through the mandate would allow the creation of a Jewish national homeland as promised in the Balfour Declaration. Uh, and the British mandate was formalized in 1922 based on the Balfour Declaration of 1917. Though this proved more difficult in reality um, because even though the mandate's framework provided for an agency, to, to do this, um, in which the Jews could represent Jewish interests and promote um, Jewish immigration, um, it wasn't created until 1929. So that's that's what that's seven years later. 
um, and it served as the de facto government of the Yishuv. So for those of you who ever, a lot of people have heard about the Jewish agency and the Jewish agency plant a tree in Israel, or is that the JNF? The JNF is plant a tree in Israel, but the Jewish agency is the one who does Aliyah. It's actually not a part of the government. I didn't know this. It's quasi-governmental, um, but it works with the government to bring people um, to Israel when they make Aliyah. It was formed during uh, one of the world, I think it was the first World Zionist Congress, um, and it was originally established to buy tracts of land from, what do you call them, uh, absentee landlords in uh, in the Ottoman Empire. So anyways, um, the Jewish agency had been prominent in acquiring land, <laughs> I wrote all this, um, from absentee landlords during the Ottoman reign and the establishment of numerous kibbutzim and moshavim. They were also the primary instrument for Jews making aliyah from the diaspora. This all changed though with the white paper of 1930, which was a British reactionary document to the 1929 Palestine riots um, that restricted Jewish immigration as a way to placate Arab leadership within the British mandate. Um, now, the Jewish reaction to this restriction was to wage a campaign by the Haganah, the Irgun, and Lehi, uh, the primary paramilitary forces of the Yeshuv, uh, against the British and the Arab leadership and forces. It is important to note that this was not an unprovoked response and that violence by both the British and an organized Arab population instigated this response. And for the most part, Jewish residents, except for at the beginning of the mandate, were not allowed by the British to arm or defend themselves, even uh, if their lives were in danger. This meant that even defensive operations were done in secret with weapon caches um, hidden throughout Jerusalem as well as throughout the rest of the mandate. Now, while the mandate period uh, was a contentious and violent time with the King David Hotel bombing of 1946, by the Irgun and Lehi in response to the roundup and arrest of Jewish underground members. Uh, under, It was done under the codename Operation Agatha, and it is where the term Black Sabbath comes from because it was started on the Sabbath. Um, and that it being, it, since that's one of the most memorable um, violent acts from this, from this time, the British mandate was also a time for the establishment of a uh, significant number of well-known Jewish landmarks. The Hebrew University of Jerusalem's cornerstone was laid on July 24th, 1918, and opened officially in April of 1925. Um, in 1918, Hadassah, or the Women's Zionist Organization of America, this is so cool, established the American Zionist Medical Unit, or AZMU, which was staffed by 45 medical health professionals. The AZMU helped to establish six hospitals in Mandatory Palestine, which were then turned over to municipal authorities. One of them was the Meyer Rothschild Hospital, which opened in Jerusalem in 1918. That same year, Hadassah also opened 
the nurses training school at the Rothschild Hospital in Jerusalem. And the first 22 young women graduated from it in 1921. <clears throat> How cool is that? Um, from 1922 to 1948, the total number of people living in Jerusalem rose from 52,000 to 165,000 and was comprised of Jews who accounted for two-thirds of the population and of Arabs, mostly Muslims and Christians, who made up the remainder of the population. To account for the swelling of the population, the British built new neighborhoods to the west and to the north of the city. So we're seeing Jerusalem starting to grow. It's starting to become bigger. It's no longer this Ottoman backwater. It is now a place where um, people are coming, people are living, people are establishing businesses. Uh, pilgrims are coming from Europe. Jews are coming from Europe, if they can, depending on the time frame. Let me take another sip of coffee real quick, and we will get along with it. Hold on. Mm. All right, so a lot of that was nice. Um, some of it was rough, but it's about to get rougher. So what would become known as the Battle for Jerusalem took place between December of 1947 through to the 18th of July, 1948. During the 1947 to 48 civil war in mandatory Palestine. Um, during the battle, the Jewish and Arab populations of mandatory Palestine and later the Israeli and Jordanian armies uh, fought for control of Jerusalem. As a precursor to this event, <clears throat> and what kicked it all off? The United Nations Partition Plan for Palestine of 1947 placed Jerusalem underneath it, what was called a corpus separatum, or under United Nations control and not a part of either the proposed Arab or Jewish state. So it was going to be independent. Uh, this was accepted by the Jews of mandatory Palestine, um, but it was rejected by the Arabs of mandatory Palestine and the Arab neighboring states as if they even got, I didn't, I don't know why they got a choice, but at this announcement by the UN fighting immediately broke out in the city between Arab and Jewish militias. In February of 1948, an Arab militia under the command of Abid al-Qaeda al-Hussein blockaded the road from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. In an attempt to prevent the supply of the city with the hope of starving the Jewish population. No lie. This blockade was eventually broken in mid-April by the efforts of the Jewish forces who took part in both Operation Nakson in Operation Maccabi. Despite the fighting taking place throughout the land and in Jerusalem, on the 14th of May, the day before the um, expiration of the British mandate, David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, declared the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Yisrael to be known as the State of Israel. Israel. This is independence, baby. This declaration was followed the next day 
by the invasion of Egyptian, Syrian, Lebanese, Jordanian, and Iraqi forces. Now, the Battle of Jerusalem was a part of their war for independence and a struggle for the new Jewish state just to survive. Whoo! Told you. Roller coaster. Whole thing is a roller coaster. Everything about Jerusalem, it would be the worst ride at Disney World. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so invigorated um, by the idea of defending their new Jewish home from enemy forces, uh, Etzioni and Harel brigades of the Haganah, supported by Irgun troops, launched a number of successful operations aimed at making contact with and routing the Arab militias to secure the eastern portion of Jerusalem. These Israeli victories against the Arab militias in Jerusalem pushed King Abdullah of Jordan to order the full Arab legion to deploy to East Jerusalem and intervene. Now, following heavy fighting, Jordan's Arab League took the Jewish quarter of the city, and immediately following this, the Jewish population was expelled from the old city, and the Haganah and Irgun fighters were taken prisoner and detained in Jordan. Blocked off from Jerusalem by Jordanian forces, holding uh, the police fort in Latrun to the west of the city, Haganah forces launched three unsuccessful assaults on Latrun, Latrun to free the road and get desperately needed supplies and reinforcements to Jerusalem. Eventually, the Haganah built an alternative road to Jerusalem called the Burma Road um, before a truce was imposed by the UN on the 11th of June, temporarily ending the fighting. Now, during this ceasefire, which was called the first truce, I guess there were a number of them, Western Jerusalem, during just the war, during just the battle, now Western Jerusalem was supplied during this truce with food, ammunition, weapons, and troops. And these uh, heroic convoys, just absolutely heroic convoys, are a part of the foundation that established the, Ham the, uh, the Haganah and the Palmach's legendary status. I mean, they're, they're a part of Jewish fighting history. Um, and a lot of it comes from their, their bravery and heroism in getting these convoys to Jerusalem. Often these convoys came under heavy and constant fire. And in some cases, the entire convoy was overtaken by Arab forces who left no survivors. One of the most tragic examples of this was the Hadassah Convoy Massacre that took place on April 13th, 1948. This convoy, escorted by the Haganah, was bringing medical and military supplies and personnel to Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus in Jerusalem. You remember I was just talking about Hadassah who established the nursing schools? These were those nurses. I'm sorry, I'm really upset. The massacre 
left 78 Jewish doctors, nurses, students, patients, faculty members, and Haganah fighters, including one British soldier, dead, with dozens of them burned beyond recognition. Sorry. Oh, the reason for ensuring that these supplies got through was the very real threat of food shortages in Jerusalem, and it's why they took the risk that they did. Eventually, convoys could not reach the city, and the rationing of food and water became the norm. To overcome this, Jerusalem's residents went out into the fields. This is so hilarious. Um, to pick mallow leaves which happened to be a rich source of iron and vitamins. Um, subsequently, uh, the Jerusalem radio station, Kol Hamagan, Hamagan uh, began broadcasting instructions uh, for the cooking of mallow. Of, of, of recipes to cook, these, uh, to cook these leaves. Now, when the broadcasts were picked up in Jordan, uh, everyone erupted into victory celebrations, um, because Radio Amman announced the fact that the Jews were eating leaves, which was food for donkeys and cattle. And to them, this was a sign that they were uh, dying of starvation and would soon surrender. This surrender, though, did not happen, and fighting resumed until the end of the war in Jerusalem. And eventually the city was split between Israel and Jordan, with Israel controlling West Jerusalem and Jordan controlling East Jerusalem and the Old City. Um, th and there's a really interesting story about how this happened. So, um, and it came as a result uh, of the establishment of a no man's land between East and West Jerusalem that developed on uh, in November 1948. And according to sources, uh, Moshe Dayan, that one-eyed uh, madman, uh, the commander of Israeli forces in Jerusalem, met with the Jordanian, his Jordanian counterpart, Abdullah Altel, uh, in a deserted house in Jerusalem's uh, Morasha neighborhood, and on this map, they marked out their respective positions with Israel's positions in red and Jordan's in green. This rough map was originally not intended in any way, shape, or form to be official, but became the final line, according to the 1949 Armistice Agreement, uh, which divided the city and left Mount Scopus as an uh, left Mount Scopus as an Israeli enclave in East Jerusalem. So I am always fascinated by Moshe Dayan's stories, and that's why I call him the one-eyed man, mad, madman, because he is like, he is, the he is, he's just, he's insane. They would be in battle, and he would go digging for artifacts, because he was an amateur archaeologist. But this guy was also in charge of all Israeli forces. It's just, it's it's insane. So, after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, Jerusalem was declared its capital city. Jordan formally annexed East Jerusalem in 1950, subjecting it to Jordanian law, 
1953 declared it to be its second capital. Uh, not surprisingly, only the United Kingdom and Pakistan um, formally recognized this annexation. So to touch back, though, and to circle back around, uh, I'm going to circle back around to that. I feel like Jen Psaki. Um, to, <laughs> to touch back on the idea uh, that was put forth in 1947 that Jerusalem should be this international city under UN governance, first Israel rejected this agreement um, with regard to Jerusalem because they saw it as null and void due to the UN's active relinquishing of responsibility in its critical hour when the UN when the UN did not act to protect the city itself. Um, the British just left. The Arab states that would attack and the Arab population of the mandate also had been against uh, Jerusalem's internationalization from the beginning. This, of course, all became a moot point on August the 2nd of 1948 during the war uh, when Dove Yosef was appointed by the Israeli government as the military governor of the occupied area of Jerusalem. So crazy. Did it, did you guys know about that? Did, how, did you guys know about the battle of Jerusalem? Everyone knows about 1967, but did anyone know about, and that it started even before the independence war had started? That it started during the uh, the uh, the civil war in Palestine, in Mandatory Palestine. So after 1948, since the old city and its walls were east of the Armistice Line, Jordan took control of the three major religious holy sites, um, the three major religions holy sites. And during this time, the Muslim holy sites were maintained and renovated. But contrary to the terms of the Armistice Agreement, Jews were denied access uh, to Jewish holy sites. They were denied access to Jewish holy sites, many of which were destroyed outright or desecrated. Now, for Christians, Jordans only allowed very limited access to Christian holy sites, and restrictions were imposed on the Christian population itself that eventually led many of them to leave Jerusalem. Half of the 58 synagogues in the old city were either raised or converted to stables and hen houses over the course of the next 19 years, uh, including the Horva and the Teferet Israel synagogue, the 3000 year old Mount of Olives Jewish cemetery was also desecrated with gravestones used by the Jordanians to build roads, latrines, and army fortifications. 38,000 graves in the Jewish cemetery were destroyed, and Jews were forbidden from being buried there. The Jordanians also demolished numerous historic and religiously significant buildings to make way for their own more modern buildings. The most tragic recipient of this willful disregard for anything Jewish was the Western Wall, or the Kotel, um, Judaism's most holy site, as it was transformed into an exclusively Muslim holy space. Now, in retaliation, Israeli authorities actively declined to protect the tombs in the Muslim Mamilla Cemetery in West Jerusalem and created a parking lot 
and public lavatories on its location in 1964. I I'm not even going to I'm not even going to venture. Um because honestly, I don't know how I feel about that. Um meaning I don't know that I'm upset with it. I know my uh the good side of me says no place should be desecrated but after all the destruction and the willful destruction i just i don't have i i don't know i don't feel like i have much compassion for anything that happened um does that make me horrible i don't know um but there you go so as i outlined before no let me stop let me back up I don't think the desecration of holy places should take place. I absolutely do not. But I understand, I guess what I'm saying is that I fully understand the emotion that the Israeli authorities took on their side when they could see all of this happening right in front of them. And it's really neat and nice in a box in a safe place to say that should never happen. That should I'm 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 horrified that that happened. But it's another thing to be sitting there and watching it destroyed right in front of you. Um, so I can say I understand. Um, that, so yeah, that's where I'm going to leave it. So as I outlined before, during the 1948 War of Independence, the Jewish residents of Eastern Jerusalem were expelled by Jordan's Arab Legion and not allowed to return. Jordan did allow, though, Arab-Palestinian refugees from the war to settle in the vacant Jewish quarter. Um, it became known by the Arabs living there as Harat al-Sharif. This would not last, though, and in 1966, the Jordanian authorities relocated 500 of these already relocated Arabs to the Shua um, Fat refugee camp as part of their plan to turn the entire Jewish quarter, I had never heard this, into a public park. So they were going to raise the entire Jewish quarter and turn it into a public park. Do you see what I mean? I can kind of understand how the Israeli government was feeling. Not feeling so generous, you know. Um, now on the western side of Jerusalem, on the 14th of February 1949, the Knesset held its first session following the January 20th elections, thus replacing the provisional state council uh, which acted as Israel's official legislature from its date of independence on the 14th of May, 1948. And succeeding what was the Assembly of Representatives that had functioned as the Jewish community's representatives, uh, representative body during the Mandate era. Now, the first Knesset uh, sessions were held in the Jewish Agency building in Jerusalem, the Kesem Cinema Building in Tel Aviv, and the Frumin Building in Jerusalem. Uh, the Knesset's current home sits on a hilltop in western Jerusalem in a district known as Givat Ram. Its main building was financed by J James de Rothschild as a gift to the state of Israel in his will and was completed in 1966. Over the years, significant subterranean additions were constructed so as not to detract from the original assembly building's appearance 
and also so it didn't disturb Jerusalem's skyline. And yeah, so that's where we're gonna end today. Um, next week, I'm gonna I'm gonna catch you up on the uh, all the rest of the modern history of the city of Jerusalem. I know it was a roller coaster ride. And um, I know it was hurtful. It's probably hurtful for both sides. So, but it is the history and it is what it is. And we all have to live with it. Um, wow, I just, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's it. That's all I got for you today. All right, hey, listen, if this is your, uh, if this is your first time watching, uh, don't forget to hit the like button. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Um, as I said, you guys, you gotta share this. Uh, share this podcast with your friends and your family. Um, they'll love it. It's a lot of fun, and I put a lot of work into it. And also, if you want to take the audio version uh, of this podcast with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, and finally, this episode was brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards. The best way to learn uh, Hebrew, the best way to brush up on Hebrew. You can find them on Amazon for Kindle. Uh, you don't need a Kindle. You can download uh, the Kindle app to your Android, your iPhone, your iPad, your PC, or your Mac. And I am going to start, I know I keep saying this, it's just, it's a big monumental thing. I am working on the verb pack. Um, they're all there. Also, hey, if you want to check out uh, my bedtime story called Who is a Jew? Where me, uh, I wrote it, Dana Korokova, she illustrated it. It's amazing. You can also find that on Kindle. Um, and you can download it there uh, directly from Amazon. And uh, all right, that's it. Todorova, the itrodve, yalla bye. Thank you.